Welcome to the Kalos Church Podcast. We're so honored that you're joining us today. The word kalos is a poorly pronounced Greek word that means beautiful. And we believe here at Kalos that the words and the ways of Jesus are very beautiful. That's why each week we're bringing content to make known that beauty. So let's go ahead and jump right in to this last Sunday's sermon. We are continuing our series on emotional, healthy spirituality tonight, and uh, I am excited. This book has been very heavy as I'm reading chapter by chapter in-depthly. I'm realizing there is no humor or encouragement like in the first half of the book, and so we are getting through this journey together, but it's been enlightening. God has been speaking to me. He's been revealing parts about who I am and my upbringing. And I want to be healthy, not just spiritually, but emotionally. Anybody with me? Because you can't be spiritually healthy if you're not emotionally healthy. Because God wants us to worship him with all of our heart, our mind, our intellect, our soul, and our emotions. He wants our hearts. And so we're going to go into chapter four today in this book. And if you want a free copy of this book, talk to me or Pastor Amitha after service or go to the connections table out there and we will get you one so that you can read through this with us. All right. Well, who, who's ready to get into the word? Anybody with me? And I know, I know we got some COVID situations going on in the world. I know this is a heavy topic, but I'm going to ask you, please, will you help me preach this message? I don't want it to feel like I'm talking to a wall with no interaction. So if something strikes you, even if it's awkward, would you please say amen, just so I feel like I'm interacting with you? <laughs> There's, I, I'm insecure when I don't use a lot of humor, because with laughter, you get feedback. And when you're talking about deep things and sad things, you don't get a lot of feedback. So I'm like, insecure. So I am, I am flesh and blood. I, I, you cut me a bleed. I have insecurities. I just want to focus on God's word, God's message. So let me know when you're tracking along, all right? So let's just practice an amen. amen. Oh, powerful. This is not a one-way conversation. All right. Well, now that we got the joy of the Lord and we got some engagement in our bones, today's message is called the dark night of the soul. I'm excited. This message explains one of the most painful spiritual principles I've ever learned in my whole life. If you have never experienced the dark night of the soul, I pray that this message would give you a heads up on something that's very common in following Jesus. If you have experienced a dark night of the soul, or you're in the midst of one right now, I pray that you would receive language and a biblical perspective on how to approach this very situation. Whenever we pray a prayer like, Jesus, I want to be more like you. Jesus, I want to follow you. You're going to experience this very reality, the dark night of the soul. In fact, in the New Testament, there is a man named John the Baptist who prays a very, very dangerous prayer. In John 3.30, he says, he must become greater and greater, speaking about Jesus, and I must become less and less. This is such a scary and dangerous prayer because God answers it. In fact, when I was a teenager, I had first given my life to the Lord. It's one of the most common prayers I prayed. Lord, I want to decrease and I want you to increase. Oh, Lord, I want to be more like you. Has anybody here ever prayed that prayer? And the thing is, Jesus answers that prayer. Have you ever asked for something 
and then you regret it when you got it? I know I have. I mean, my, my daughter, this last week, I was eating some olives that I found in the fridge because we're fasting as a church, so I'm eating olives. There was one olive left. I grabbed it. I'm eating it, and my daughter, Nala, says, I want that. And I know she's going to hate it, so I give it to her. I'm that kind of father. <laughs> I'm going to give her exactly what she's asking for. I give her the olive. She tries it. She immediately puckers her face, and she spits it right back into my hand. And it gave me the satisfaction that only fatherly, malicious compliance gives you. Any parents like me... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. There are times in our lives where we ask for something, our Heavenly Father gives it to us, and it doesn't taste right, it doesn't taste the best, it's not exactly what we imagine. I love it. This whole idea of malicious compliance, I was looking at some pictures I found of this guy who, who does Photoshop for a living. People tweet at him and say, hey, I have this picture, would you adjust it for me? And then he literally completes their task. Would you like to see some of these pictures? All right, glory to God. Let me show you this first one. Let's put it up on the screen. It says, hey, uh, could you do something about the lady in the background on the left? That's the original picture. And so he does something. <laughs> you should have been more specific. Let's look at another one. <laughs> hey, my hands look weird. Can you make it look like I'm holding the pole instead? Sure. <laughs> so he photoshops the pole. I love this. Can you remove the guy in, in the background? You see by the Ferris wheel. Well, he moves the guy in the back. <laughs> you should have specified which person. All right, you do good work. This was so such a beautiful morning. I, I'm so far away from the camera. Can you fix it? Sure. So he zooms right in in the spirit of malicious compliance. I'm not saying our Heavenly Father operates in the spirit of malicious compliance. But I am saying, when you pray that prayer, Lord, I want to decrease. I want to follow you. I want to be more like you. Get ready for a painful spiritual journey because he will answer that prayer. In fact, in, in the life of John the Baptist, we see this amazing story. I encourage you, you open up the Bible for yourself and read it. But John the Baptist, he's He's prophesied over before he's even born. He's going to prepare the way for Jesus. He's called John the Baptist because he baptizes Jesus in the womb before he's even born. He's one of the first people in the New Testament to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. It says that his mom in the womb, it, it leaps when the presence of Jesus is around. Amazing. And then he, he gets this opportunity to, to actually minister to Jesus. He's living in the wilderness. Thousands of people are coming to hear him preach. He, he's eating locusts and honey. Sounds like the dream. Living in the desert. He's just this radical man. And he baptizes Jesus. And he sees that the voice of the Father tangibly speaks into this whole public gathering. The voice says about Jesus, this is my son. I love him. I'm well pleased with him. The Holy Spirit lands on the shoulder of Jesus like a dove. He gets to see all of this. He has a front row to the miraculous of Christ. He leads thousands of people to Jesus. I mean, it's incredible. And then he begins this journey of speaking truth to political powers 
and it gets them in trouble. People will respect your biblical message until sometimes you start messing with their political allegiances. And so he speaks truth to these political powers, and he's placed in jail because of it. And eventually he is beheaded. In that jail cell, as he's facing his death, a death because he was righteous, a death because he was following the will of God, he has a dark night of the soul while he's in his cell, a jail cell. And he starts to ask some very honest questions. And this is after the miracles. This is after a public ministry. This is after following after the one true Messiah his whole entire life. And in Matthew eleven three, 3, he says this question at the end of his life about Jesus. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? What an honest question. I can relate to it. I'm someone, I've led so many people to Christ. I've preached on platforms. I've led people to Jesus. I've seen the supernatural. I've seen signs and wonders. I've seen lives transformed. I've given my entire life to Jesus. But even as a pastor, there are moments in my life, like John the Baptist, where I have to ask myself, I have to ask God, are you really the one? Or should we look for another? Have you ever been there? And a dark night of the soul is different than just like a, a setback or a trial or something bad happening in your life. It's like you're John the Baptist. You've been following after God your whole life, but suddenly you're alone. You're trapped in a cell. It feels like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. It feels like God's out there doing his thing, but you're cut off from the presence of God. It's like you're cut off from the voice of God. It's like your spiritual disciplines don't work like they used to. And it's a very, very scary moment. You have to question everything about who you are, everything about the scriptures, and everything about the character of God. Are you the one, or should we look for another? If you're praying a prayer to become more like Jesus you're going to go through this journey. Even Jesus had times where he prayed the beginning of psalmist, like, God, why have you forsaken me? When he was alone in the garden before the cross and his disciples abandoned him and he, he was dealing with stress to the point of sweating blood. If you're following Jesus, if you're becoming like Jesus, you're going to experience a dark night of the soul, and I don't want you to be surprised, and I don't want you to feel like less of a Christian or less of a disciple of Jesus when you experience those doubts, insecurities, and fears. You know, I want to show you this graphic from chapter 4 in the book. It talks about stages of faith. Stage 1 is when we're first coming to follow Jesus. We have a life-changing awareness of God. We see the beauty of Jesus. We say we want to follow him. We say we want to receive salvation. We want that second chance. We pray that prayer of surrender. Then we move on to stage two where we don't want to just be saved by Jesus. We want to become like Jesus. We want to learn spiritual disciplines. We want to learn that, that intimate relationship with him. So we become disciples. We become apprentices. Lord, I want to pick up your way. And so we're learning. And then 
we begin stage three where we have an active life. Lord, I don't just want to be a consumer. I don't want to just hear sermons. I want to start serving in the local body of Christ. I want to use my gifts and talents to not just be a consumer, but a contributor. And you start working with people. But then there's this thing right there called the wall. Another way it's described in the book is the dark night of the soul. And this is when we have those moments where the the awareness of God doesn't taste as good anymore. The spiritual disciplines don't seem to work. You're still praying. You're still reading the Bible. You're still showing up on Sundays. But your emotions, your heart, it it just doesn't feel connected to God. That's the wall. It's a barrier. It holds you back in your faith. And then from that, once we go through that, and I believe that we can go through it, we go on this journey inward where we learn about ourselves and who we are and the doubts and the insecurities and the false self and the, the version of ourselves we pretend to be before God and before other people. And then once we navigate that by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, we begin a, a journey outward. We say, hey, I've experienced this pain and I want to I use it to help others who are going through the same experience. In stage six, we're continually going through this journey of being transformed by love. The sad thing is, you may not just go through one dark night of the soul. And often they last years. It's not a quick journey. It can last a decade. And it can happen multiple times. It's a painful, painful reality. So what is the dark night of the soul? I want to read this quote from the book. How do we know we are in the dark night? Our good feelings of God's presence evaporate. We feel the door of heaven has been shut as we pray. Darkness, helplessness, weariness, a sense of failure or defeat, barrenness, emptiness, dryness descend upon us. The Christian disciplines that have served us up to this time no longer work. We can't see what God is doing, and we see little visible fruit in our lives. This is God's way of rewiring and purging our affections and passions that we might delight in his love and enter into a richer, fuller communion with him. God wants to communicate to us his true sweetness and love. He longs that we might know his true peace and rest. He works to free us from unhealthy attachments and idolatries of the world. He longs for an intimate, passionate love relationship with us. For this reason, John of the Cross wrote that God sends us the dark night of loving fire to free us. You'll find that in this journey of emotional health, yes, we listen to our emotions, but at the end of the day, emotions are not our God. And we're, we're seeking the face of God. We're seeking to become more like Jesus. We're not just seeking to follow or being controlled by our emotions. And this takes a purging fire. This takes a refinement that is very, very painful. But I want you to notice in the life of John the Baptist, when he's praying these honest, doubting prayers, when he's questioning God, God doesn't question John. In fact, he encourages him. Moving on in the scripture, it says in verse 4, Jesus answered. Jesus was willing to answer the deepest and darkest questions of John. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. He's referencing a 
messianic promise and prophecy in the book of Isaiah. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I want you to notice that as he's sharing this messianic prophecy about the traits of the true Messiah, do you notice which one he leaves out? The captives are set free. Have you ever had a moment with God where he sends you encouragement, but not a miracle? He sends you people, but not his presence? That's exactly what John the Baptist is experiencing here. Are you the one? I'm in a jail cell. I'm practicing righteousness. And you send me people with a message of the miraculous when I need a miracle? I'm stuck. I'm facing death, and you're reading a scripture to me? You're telling me to listen to another sermon? I need finances. My marriage is falling apart. I just received a diagnosis. I have a surgery coming up. My business is falling apart. My family is falling apart. And you're sending me a scripture? You're sending me a sermon? You're sending me a cliche? Just trust God, brother. Ever ask God for a miracle and he just sends you encouragement? John the Baptist understands. And yet, Jesus doesn't belittle John the Baptist. I'm so encouraged. He doesn't say, I'm going to call you doubting John the Baptist, like we do with some of the heroes of faith in the New Testament, doubting Thomas, who had one night of doubt after he watched Jesus crucified and ended up going to preach the gospel in India. I'm thankful for that. And yet we call him Doubting Thomas. Jesus doesn't label him as someone with doubt. You see, John questioned God, but God didn't question John. And it's the same for you. It's okay if you have doubts and questions, and it's okay if you're experiencing a dark night of the soul. You know, I... I'm a pastor, and I think I'm in a dark night of the soul right now. And it's awkward, it's insecure to say that. I feel like I talk about myself a lot, and I'm like, not just using this platform to vent. I have a therapist for that. <laughs> but I think it's important that us spiritual leaders show that we need Jesus just like anybody else, that we're wounded healers just yeah. like anybody else. And I, I probably went into my deepest dark night of the soul when we began this journey of church planting. We moved across the nation. We celebrate five years in Seattle this January, actually. It's wild. We moved here, and we got bad report after bad report after bad report. A couple of months into moving to this region, we got a call. Amrita's father suddenly passed away. No warning, no expectation. Got another call. My sister living in India got den dengue fever. She was in a hospital bed for about three months, went blind during that time, experiencing pain. So many members of my family went through divorces. My family split apart. Am I allowed to be friends with my step-siblings anymore and my, my old stepmom and things like that? Like The family dynamics are just spreading apart. My, my stepfather, he... A pastor, a Lutheran pastor in California, got cancer, had to go on a death trip to say her goodbyes, and then 
he passed away. Right when we didn't think things could get any worse. And this is all on top of church planting. This is all on top of saying yes to the call of God. Yeah. Saying, well, sell everything. We'll, we'll leave our friends. We'll leave our community. Yeah, we just had our first child, and we really need support right now, but we're going to follow your voice, God. We get another call. Our friend is curious if our son has autism. We get him diagnosed. He does. We get to see him lose his language and eye contact, his ability to play catch. It feels like we lost the son we knew and had to get to know this non-speaking son. A few more months into it, a year passes, still dealing with our expectations or our dreams for what a family life would look like. The church is growing, meanwhile, still preaching, still seeing miracles for everybody but our family. And then our daughter gets diagnosed with autism, so now all of our children may not be able to speak with us in the only language we know how to speak. And it's just heart-wrenching. And meanwhile, we're preaching hope. Meanwhile, we're leading people to Jesus. Meanwhile, we're praying for sick people and seeing God doing supernatural miracles for everybody but our family. And it feels like, man, I'm in this dark cell, and Jesus is like, look, the blind are able to see. It's like we're in our dark cell, and like Jesus is like, look, the poor are getting good news, the gospel. And I'm like, what about our family, God? A dark night of the soul. People try to encourage us with cliches, but they don't work. I'm reaching out to every theological mastermind I can, and they don't have answers for me. Like, sorry, dude, that sucks. I'm like, but why? Why? I know the right answers, but, but why? I'm literally calling people who've written books on the phone about this. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why won't it stop? You know, people are sending me little memes. They're like, I had this dream that you were walking on the beach, and there are two sets of footprints. And then there was only one set of footprints. And you're like, God, where were you in my dark night of the soul? He's like, there was only one set of footprints because I was carrying you. And I'm like, I'm going to slap you in the face. <laughs> in my dream, there's not one set of footprints. There's one line because I'm dragging my feet, kicking and streaming, trying to punch God to get me my miracle. <laughs> Anybody with me? <laughs> like, I hate that meme. I hate it so much. It was a meme before memes existed. And so John, like me, is just questioning God. What are you doing? And then Jesus encourages this idea of John. He says in Matthew eleven eleven, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. See, John questioned God, but God didn't question John. I wrote it like this. Even when John the Baptist questioned Jesus, Jesus didn't question him. God can handle our doubts, fears, and faithlessness. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of humanity to search it out. God doesn't question the need for you to question God. Seek and you will find him. Amen. And so this is an invitation to seek God in the mystery, in the confusion. God, what are you doing? And this is why I want to warn you today. If you are praying this prayer, if you want to become more like Jesus, get ready for a painful death. Get ready for a series of painful deaths. You know, I was talking to my therapist this last week, just complaining and venting about these things. She's like, 
I feel like you're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. I'm like, but I don't want to. I just want a miracle. I just want my kids to be able to speak to me. She's like, remember that scripture in Romans 8? It says, and we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Usually we end the scripture there, right? God, give me my PlayStation. I know you're working out all things. But it goes on, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. Everybody say conformed. Conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers. Being conformed is a painful process. We are literally humans asking to be fit into a Jesus-shaped hole. Spiritually speaking, we are called to be a round peg that fits into a square hole. And to illustrate that, I want to ask my friend Jessica to come up here. And Jessica is going to show us the power of clay and pottery. All right, and you got a microphone there. Everybody say hi, Jess. Hi, Jess. Do you prefer Jess or Jessica? Either one is fine. All right, I'll stick with Jess. <laughs> and so as she gets set up, I want to read a scripture from Jeremiah. It says, so I went down to the potter's house and saw him working with clay at the wheel like Jess. He was making a pot from clay like Jess. But there was something wrong with the pot unlike Jess. So the potter used that clay to make another pot. With his hands, he shaped the pot the way he wanted it to be. Then this message from the Lord came to me. Family of Israel slash Kalos, you know that I can do the same thing with you. You are like the clay in the potter's hands, and I am the potter. So Jesus wants to conform us into the image of Jesus like clay in the Jess's hand. And so, Jess, would you kind of explain what is the process you're about to show us? Well, take us step by step through the process of pottery. Yeah, so similar to what <laughs> we have been talking about, you kind of have to really mold it into place first. So uh, what you do with pottery on the wheel specifically, you need to center it. So I'm going to kind of push it together to get it into the middle. And then once it's centered, you poke a hole in it and you pull the wall out you lift the wall up, which I'll show you, and then at the end you shape it into a pot, any kind of shape that you want really. Um, once it's all dry, you let it dry for a few days, and then we fire it in the kiln, so it does have to go through a firing process to become rock. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Wow, so that sounds beautiful when it comes to that. <laughs> but when we're, you know, we're made from earth, from dust, we are clay in the potter's hand, God. And that process, when it's us, is a very painful process. You take that clay, you put water, the water of God's word on it. You center it on the wheel of God, the local church and his people. And then you begin this process of spinning around. Anybody here feel like your world is spinning? You're like, God, what is going on? Are you serious? I'm going through this again? I just saw that view of Pastor Pradeepin. I have to see it again. And then it's stabbed through. She's forming it with pressure. And then she's going to poke a hole in it and carve out emptiness in the midst of his soul <laughs> while my children are suffering. Sorry, it's not just about me. 
But it's this whole process. But when we are going through this, right, we don't like it. If I was this clay, I would be like, but I, I don't want to be a pot. I want to be a plate. The book of Romans says, what right do we have to say to the potter? I don't want to be this vessel. I want to be another vessel. God, I, I wish you wouldn't have made me like this. I want to be like this. The scripture talks about the clay speaking back, and, and we're like, Lord, why am I spinning around? Why doesn't everything make sense? God, why aren't you speaking to me? Jess, why are you so silent? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't touch me there. <laughs> Jess, stop touching me. <laughs> Jess, stop touching me. God. I don't want to be touched there. You can have this part of my life, but not my children. God, you can have this part of my life, but not my finances. God, you can have this part of my life, but not my politics. Don't touch me there. God, you can have this part of my life, but not my sexuality. Don't touch me there. Isn't that what we scream? And it feels beautiful when Jess does that. But when it's our life, it's so painful. But it's part of the process to being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's part of the reality to becoming disciples and apprentices of Jesus Christ. And if you're going through this process, it is so hard. And it's okay that you think it's so hard. It is so difficult, and it's okay if you don't like it. It's okay. That's you. Look at it. Look at it! That's you. That's you. God wants to shape you. God wants to help you decrease in your own flesh and increase into his image. He has great hopes and plans for you. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's forming. You are a masterpiece, the scripture says, destined to do great works that he has prepared ahead of time for you to accomplish. You're a masterpiece that requires formation and touch and water and intentionality. And God is going to form you. And I want you to look at me for this point because some of us are in that dark night of the soul and we just want to give up. We just want to give up. We want to turn our back on God because we feel like he's turned his back on us. But don't give up, please. It's worth it. He's creating something beautiful in you He's going to create something beautiful through you. And if you're thinking about giving up, remember this phrase. Harder than waiting on God is wishing that you did. Harder than waiting on God is realizing I quit when he was in the midst of making something beautiful out of me. Because once this vessel is shaped, the scripture says that it can be filled with new wine in Seattle, filled with new IPA. 
God wants to fill you with a beautiful aroma. He wants, to, he wants to fill you, overflow you with his presence. And he wants you to be able to contain and hold the beauty and glory he has prepared for you. And so I want to encourage you, don't give up. Sometimes faith means understanding our circumstances in a way that only makes sense in reverse. And that's what I'm telling myself right now as I'm in the midst of that. God, would you make something beautiful out of me? God, I'm going to trust you in light of eternity. God, I don't understand what you're doing in my family. I don't understand what you're doing in my life. But in light of eternity, I believe that you're going to work all things out for good. Amen? Amen. I believe it. I'm trusting it. We all want these mountaintop moments in our faith. But if you've ever climbed a really tall mountain, if you've ever gone above 8,000 meters you're in the death zone. You realize that mountaintops are great, but fruit doesn't grow there. It grows in the valley. It grows in the valley. And God's going to produce the fruit of becoming more like Jesus in your life as you're being shaped. If you need another analogy, as God shapes you into a vessel, maybe he's going to shape you into like a beautiful violin. And the violin can only resonate sound if it's empty on the inside. It's when we've been hollowed out on the inside and we're in, in line with the resonating power of God's voice that we can begin to make a beautiful song to the Lord. But it's painful. It's empty. It's lonely. The dark night of the soul will create a brokenness, a detachment. It'll help you to become more like Jesus. It'll help you to appreciate the mystery that we don't have answers for every spiritual part of our life. It's going to help you to give grace to people who are experiencing it too. I asked this question on Facebook. What did you learn from your dark night of the soul? And I want to, I want to close with some of these because they're so powerful. I don't have super practical steps on what to do, but just what can we learn and how can we hold on? This one girl who uh, her, her husband recently this year just passed away a month before their first child was born. She wrote, what did I learn from my dark night of the soul? I learned the even ifs. Even if the Lord didn't show up in the miraculous like I thought he would, I still trust. Her baby's about three months old now. <laughs> and she's writing this without her husband. Even if the circumstances look bleak, I still believe the best is yet to come somehow. Even if my heart is so heavy, the Lord not only cares for it, but desires to heal me and bring me through it. Also that sometimes heart posture is not enough, but real faith is how you respond when it is tested and put through the fire. Just powerful. Lessons from the dark night of the soul. Another person wrote, this is just so painful. She wrote, nothing surprises God. This was a helpful reminder when we were grappling with the shock of our baby's cancer. It shook our world, but not God. And God cares more about our relationship with him than our earthly circumstances. And he can truly be with us through it. Another person wrote, though I couldn't always see it going through it, the Lord showed his faithfulness. He provided so sweetly throughout the season, the timing of it, strength to do exactly what needed to be done in a given day, loved ones to carry and provide for what I couldn't do, 
Some of the most special relationships formed during it, and I became more resilient, yet more empathetic. And so today, I'm someone in a dark night of the soul, but I have a posture of hope, knowing that as I'm conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, he has something greater for me in light of eternity. And so instead of asking God to make my will done, I simply acknowledge that I am clay in the potter's hands. And so I humbly say, Lord, even though it hurts, even though I feel like my world is spinning, even though I, I feel like I can't stand the pressure, even though I feel so much emptiness, thy will be done. Let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, thank you that you're with us. You never abandon us. You never forsake us. And God, to be honest, some of us are, are disappointed with your lack of miracles. God, some of us are disappointed that you haven't answered the prayers. Some of us are distant that you're not speaking to us audibly. You're not coming to us like we want. And we remember what you said about John the Baptist. Blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. Lord, we know that offense is the opposite of gratitude. And so would you help us to not be offended? Would you help us to see where you're working and to place our trust in you? That we are the clay and you are the potter. I am the clay and you are the potter. Would you just say that to Jesus? I am the clay and you are the potter. One more time. I am the clay and you are the potter. And everybody said, amen and amen. Can we give it up to Jesus even if it hurts? Amen. We can trust him. Thank you so much for joining us for the Kalos Church Podcast. Hey, if you feel comfortable, we would love to see you and meet you in person. We meet at 945 and 1130 every Sunday at the Hilton Garden Inn in downtown Bellevue. If you want to join us, head to www.kalos.church. You can get all the information you need and sign up so we can make sure there's a safe place for you to come and experience the beauty of Jesus with you. We'll see you next time. Yeah.